Yeah, let's do it. All right. We're loosened up. We're loosened up. I had a little puff, too. Steve had a puff or two. <laughs> I got water. I got my notes. Yep. I got a breeze. I got a crap top. Crap top. Just for referring to a couple things. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, lead leaf peeper and weary woodsman at the Himalayan Quasar Magnet School. Congratulations. Thank you. I've come a long way. That's true. I, when you first started down that path, I wondered, is he really going to stick this through the whole way? to be what you've become well you know what they say pigeons can't drop on you if they never flew Ooh, i like that wow wow it's getting deep already here on this imparting some wisdom i'm co-host jeremy and i am the co-founder of the hgma (laughs) what's the hgma it's the hurdy-gurdy maximalist association (laughs) that one's for you peter oh well it, it, it's a good thing you ran that one by me in the car on the way over here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to upset you too much. <laughs> Peter and I have a little thing. I'm sure we'll get into it more later. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sure it's bound to come up. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am the prior president of the Maddie Former Fan Club. Wait, wait strike that. Reverse it. <laughs> the the The... Former president of the Maddie Pryor fan club. Ooh, nice. I see what you did there. Got it. I'm Steve Krakow. Some know me as Plastic Crime Wave. And I'm a maxi-minimalist. Oh. Of the hurdy-gurdy or just generally? Just generally speaking. Okay. Well, welcome back, Steve Plastic Crime Wave Krakow. It's been... A little while since we had you on the show. Uh, by a little while, I mean oh, two and a half years. Yeah, we yeah. Were, about a pandemic's worth. Yeah, yeah. This is like a homecoming. We are back in your lair in Chicago once again, minus Sean, who is joining us from Philly as per usual. Mm-hmm. Jeremy and I are here in Chicago, and uh, you can hear that rumble of the Chicago traffic out there. <laughs> it's it, it's making its way into our. Mike's in, in ears. Fine Western Avenue, the longest continuous residential street in America. Is it really? Yes. Well, how about that? Residential. That Res- was the word I was missing for a long time because people will correct me, yada, yada, residential. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's important to know. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Like, I got to like, say this room we're in is not minimalist at all, Steve. <laughs> this is maximalism pure. At its most maximum. <laughs> Yeah, for those who have uh, have never w- witnessed a, uh, a a video uh, or a tour of Plastic Crime Wave Lair, it's uh, it's quite the thing to see. Every bit of wall space and shelf space is is occupied with. Uh, how would you want to describe them? I don't want to use the wrong word. <laughs> Ephemera. Yeah, no. that's what I was, was kind of thinking. <laughs> 
yeah. I sadly, you know, collector, eh, collecting, that's a word that's kind of. It's loaded. Been, it's loaded. It's been run into the ground a little bit. Um, yeah, I just, I'm kind of a stuffed person. I'm comics, magazines, records, books, movies, VHS, paperbacks. Yeah. I like it all. And you're also a musician, illustrator, curator, uh, impresario. I don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been, Throw you've been, that one in there. <laughs> yeah. A long time Chicago staple. Been here a while. And in this very lair. Yeah. For uh, 20, over a quarter century now, we'll say. Yes. <laughs> Just over. Yes. <laughs> so the, the walls are closing in a little bit. What did you pull from uh, your your stash here to uh, discuss with us today? You know, for our uh, opening month of season four, we're talking records from 1972. Yes, for the 72, I went for a little steel eye span below the salt. How would you um, medieval acid folk rock? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It's a hard one to uh, sort of pigeonhole, but it's funny. I'm looking at my copy right now and I'm noticing it must have been a radio station copy because there's yeah. little marked somehow. And mine was $2. You paid $2 for it. I have a $2 sticker on it, but they gave me a pass on this yeah, one. Yeah, so. Yeah. We, we... Never let it be said they're not open-minded here at, at, <laughs> at I'll buy that for a dollar. It can be, I buy that for $2. Yeah. Yeah, if we stuck to strictly dollar records, we would really uh, limit ourselves here. This but. has surely been in a dollar bin somewhere. <laughs> surely. Oh, yes. Yep. St- Steel Eye spanned pretty much their entire discography, minus maybe the first album. Uh, that one usually fetches a little bit more i would say but almost everything else you're gonna find for like five dollars and this is their fourth yep this is their fourth album uh it was and i guess it was their first release on the chrysalis label it was released september 15th 1972 the same day as john denver's rocky mountain high whoa (laughs) wanted to throw that in there for jeremy and exactly a year and two weeks before i was born oh yeah that's uh, yeah i was uh, you're 73 yeah Uh, i was a 73 September september man 30th Yes. Yes. Yeah. So close there. Yeah. Well, where do we want to, before we talk any more about it, we should probably let people hear it. Where are we going to start? Where are we? Are we going to go like sort of in the album order here? A I bit? think we had discussed uh, Royal Forester side a track five. I think that's a good place to start. All right. So let's do that. Now since you've laid me down, young honey must take me 
All right, gang, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I don't like this. And I derisively uh, call it Ren Fair music to anger Peter. And I'm just not going to be talked into this one is the reality. So I'm just... We got a naysayer in the peanut gallery. <laughs> I know, I know. See, the thing is, it's funny is like there's not really like a drop of Anglo blood in my body. I'm like a Polish Russian Jew, and I don't know why my soul calls out to this music. I can't explain it. So that's if it doesn't. And it's funny because I had an old roommate. His name was Kieran O'Kelly, and he hated this kind of shit because he grew up with it and he heard it all the time and he was like get this away from me this is giving me flashbacks to everything freaky about my youth and i don't have that yeah same way christian hymns don't bother me very much i'm like this is great you know people are like ah church flashback no yeah you know but to each their own I, i can't explain why this stuff basically calls out to me yeah I just wanted to throw it out there, get it behind us, and then all you lovers of it can just dive in and enjoy. We, we, it's out of the way, and we can proceed forward. Well, it, and it's worth noting that uh, these, you know, this is 1972, as we said. Uh, this is their fourth album. These are not originals that they're performing. They are, they, what, what would be the word for what they, they did? I mean, I guess, you know, they're, kind of highly electrifying traditional songs, which at that point had not really been done very much. I mean, I guess you you had Fairport Convention who in a way Steel Ice Band were almost an offshoot of because Mm -hmm. of Tiger Hutchings, Ashley Hutchings, you know, because he went from Fairport, he wanted to do something kind of stick with something more traditional while they were going a little more folk rock, Mm -hmm. you know, so they sort of set a precedent for this, but it just really hadn't been done much, you know, at, at this point. So I think it's a thing that now people hear it and you've, you know, you've heard River Dance. You've heard every sort of trad, electrified trad band that you're ever going to hear in your life. But I, I think it was a new notion to sort of take this music and sort of, you know, contemporize it a little bit and sort of, you know, even the arrangements are almost sort of progressive rock and Chrysalis was a progressive rock label, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like Tall was on, yeah, you Jets know, stuff like who are another band that kind of straddled the, a little bit of the traditional with the progressive, you know. Yeah, so. Ian Anderson from Jethro Tall produced some of their music. Right, and, and she, with- Maddie is on a Tall record. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there there is a bit of cross-pollination there a little bit. Well, that one we just listened to, Royal Forester, uh, in the, the liner notes to this, The Gatefold, which they were kind enough to give some information, background on how they came to find these songs and, and sort of their origins, or at least what they had available to them at the time. That one is listed as coming from the singing of John, it's either Strawn or Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. He was a Scottish farmer and singer. Strachan. Yeah, Strachan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he was a Scottish farmer and singer who had a repertoire of Bothy ballads that had been passed down by word of mouth for over 200 years, which I wasn't really familiar with, with what, is it pronounced Bothy? Bothy ballads. They, I got me. You got me a little bit there. I yeah. mean, I you know, I fashion myself a little bit of an ethnomusicologist, but there's certain things that are just like you know beyond. Like if it, you know, we yeah. gr- if we grew up in Britain, we would understand <laughs> this stuff probably a bit more. You know. Yeah, this was interesting to me. Bothy ballads are songs sung by farm laborers in the northeast region of Scotland. Mm. Uh, Bothies are farm outbuildings where unmarried laborers used to sleep. 
often in harsh conditions, and in the mm. evening to entertain themselves, these Bathi bands sang. So John Strachan, or John Strachan, <laughs> he was sort of this living vessel of these songs wow. that had been passed down by word of mouth for over 200 years. His version of Peggy O was recorded by Bob Dylan as Pretty Peggy O on the first Dylan record and also recorded by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm. Uh, the way he was recorded was actually Alan Lomax recording. Uh. Yeah. And this is so this is based on a recording of him singing a piece called The Night and the Shepherd's Daughter. Interesting. Yeah, it kind of all comes back to that Lomax stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, him and Shirley Collins going around and recording that stuff. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah so, so Lomax didn't just document in the United States. He came, he went over to the, the UK and documented their folk music there as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's like the equivalent of, you know, the worker who sleeps in the shed music is a lot like our blues and you know work songs in the field and stuff like that and it's important stuff to document yeah and it might sound sort of frilly and ren fairish to <laughs> us now but at the time these were the songs of the people mm -hmm. the salt of the earth below the i like that a little bit <laughs> you're starting to win me over <laughs> hey those below the salt below of the, the salt yes, yes. <laughs> steel eye span on this album are Maddie Pryor singing, Tim Hart singing as well as playing guitar, I think some other instruments as well, Peter Knight playing the fiddle, viola. It seems that sometimes it's credited as violin and sometimes credited as fiddle, depending on how it's used in the song. Right, right. <laughs> They're both a fiddle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have Bob Johnson on guitar and Rick Kemp on bass. And Steel Eye Span lineup, was constantly shifting. But, you know, we mentioned Ashley Hutchings from Fairport Convention had been a founder of Steel Eye Span, and by this point, the fourth album, he has already departed. He's gone, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Maddie really ended up, even Tim Hart leaves at one point with Down the Line, so I think she ends up being like the only constant. Um, but uh, my absolute favorite lineup is probably the first record, Hark the Village. I mean, and, and this is crazy. The first record was 70. So mm -hmm. they put their fourth record by 72. So they're putting out like two records a year here, basically, which, you know, it's just by today's standards, incomprehensible that bands could do that. Yeah. Um, but it was very common back then. But it was like two couples. It was like the couple of Hart and Pryor, and then it was the Woods on that first record, Terry and Gay Woods, and it was a very different dynamic. And then, yeah, they left, and then eventually, you know, Ashley Hutchings left, and people were sort of slowly came in. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Carthy is a guy who sort of came in and out of the band as well. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Woods, who were initially in the band, didn't they go on to form another group? Or were they from another group? The they started just a thing called the Woods Band. Okay, that's And then they did a number of records together as Terry and Gay Woods, just the two of them. And then eventually Terry Woods joined the Pogues. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think but he, he did have, he was in Sweeney's Men pre all that, one of those sort of local groups or whatever. Yeah. Um, very traditional kind of stuff. Yeah, but I, I really love that. I mean, that's the thing is I kind of like every era of the band. I mean, at least up until the end of the 70s, it's there. there's a level of consistency there. And, you know, I mean, sometimes the rock aspect is a little up. Sometimes the more magical medieval aspect is up. And this record, it's high. It's very high on this one. I conf you know, confess because they're doing all traditional ancient songs, whereas that changes a bit later. Yeah, I, the first song of theirs that I discovered 
was their version of Two Magicians, which I, I, I found it by way of, I was listening to the band Current 93 mm. with uh, David Tibet, and they did that song as, I think it was called Old Cole Blacksmith on uh, one of their records, and somehow I found the Steel Eye Span version, which is Two Magicians, and just fell in love with it. it some it just Matty Pryor's voice and just that kind of jerky rock instrumentation combined with the traditional folk sound really appealed to me. And I think it, that might have been the first time that I really got that sound too, because I had listened to some Fairport prior to that and and liked it. All right, now I'm a huge Fairport convention fan, but it took me a little while to fully get into this sort of traditional British folk sound updated for the the 60s and 70s you know it wasn't instantaneous for me no I don't think it was for me either honestly I mean my gateway was probably like incredible string band and Donovan and you know the sort of headier side of the spectrum and then you know sort of work my way to the very traditional kind of stuff I don't know if that immediately appealed to me yeah as a as a as a young lad you know <laughs> but uh Sean you're quiet over there where do you stand in the steel eye the traditional UK folk inspired stuff has never really spoken to me. Oh, um, we got two. <laughs> and then there were two. I've never hated it, you know? I, I've never been like a hater of it because the thing is, like, I have always, you know, known some very well respected record collectors like Steve who are super into this stuff and Peter. So it's like I knew there was something here and it wasn't like it was bad but uh, so that being said i wanted to give like extra plays to this record before getting into this episode just to see if i could get it to grow on me and i'm i'm getting pretty close at least with this record i really like the stuff that combines the electric instruments in more and then the more i read about the lyrics and the intention and like the way this music is presented it kind of made more sense to me like what jeremy was saying with this angle of music of the people and also a lot of the lyrics in here are pretty dark you know they're presented in this kind yeah, of yeah that's what i'm saying these are like some murder ballads yeah <laughs> yeah totally i mean well the song we just listened to has some like really heavy themes in it too but a lot of them are presented in this kind of jaunty fun almost like hokey sounding way to modern ears but there's a lot going on here and yeah i'm coming around to this record i don't know if i'm gonna if it's gonna like spark a whole fascination with the genre itself but <laughs> i gave it my best effort I, actually i think we're grabbing him about me i think it maybe is it the one after this pleased to see the king or it's right around the same time it's hard for me to keep track of the order it's got some insane fuzzy wawa stuff going on on it and just on a on a like on a sonic level i was like whoa you know i've never really heard that used in this sort of music's context before and i think that's probably what really dragged me in because i don't even listen to lyrics and stuff like that necessarily right away that's kind of sinks in a little more for uh later for me and stuff but um just on a pure sonic level, I think I thought it was interesting. And this record too, there there are some really insane sort of fuzzed up acoustic instruments always just sonically are, are really insane sounding to me. You know, yeah. um, it's a unique mm -hmm. thing that isn't present in a lot of music. So uh, yeah. And they did a really good job on this album of like tastefully mixing it in. You know, you don't just hear like the same electric sound kind of meandering throughout the entire track. Like it comes in at key moments and in just the right amount and really elevates the song. Totally. 
Well, the next song that we were going to feature does not include any instrumentation other than the voices of the band. It's an acapella number called Gaudete. And also as a disclaimer to our listeners, <laughs> we have opted because the band chose to mix this rather strangely on the record, which I guess to my understanding it is to resemble the sound of a, a choir in the distance getting closer, passing you by, and then walking like down the street. It's very hazy and reverby on the record. That's the way it was mixed on the album. We have opted to play you the single version, which stays at the same volume throughout the duration of the track. <laughs> so we'll, we'll speak more about this, uh, this Christmas song <laughs> that we're playing here in the month of October when we come back. But let's listen to Gaudete. Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus est natus, ex Maria virginae, Gaudete, 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 Christus est natus, ex Maria virginae, Gaudete. Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus natus, ex Maria virginae, Gaudete, 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 Christus natus, ex Maria virginae, Gaudete. Mundus renovatus est a Christo regnante. Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus est natus, ex Maria virginae. Gaudete, 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 Christus est natus, ex Maria virginae. Peter forced me to buy the single as well as the LP, so that I could get the proper version. I already had it. No, I got a UK. <laughs> UK pressing. <laughs> Real cheap over there, because as we were discussing, this was a hit. This was this was a hit it song. Was a hit. We just we just blew Jeremy's mind when we were listening to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Telling him that I was surprised that the song was on a 45 and that, you know, Peter cared so much about it. And I listening to him like it's, it's just acapella. And then I was like, this was a hit too. And was very surprised. And, you know, I was like, why would they ever choose this as a single? Why was this a hit? But at the same time, this song has been getting stuck in my head multiple times a day for like the past few days while getting ready so for this episode. So there's, there's something there. Yeah. Well, th you know, it was a hit in the UK and like, this is their traditional music. So it's like, I think, you know, this sort of, that kind of melody and everything sort of touches a chord with people that it would never hear. I, you know, I was trying to think of the American equivalent. We don't have ancient melodies to connect to because we're not ancient, but yeah. I guess the, you know, equivalent would be like some sort of like novelty folk country song or something, you know, on Should the radio. Coming around the mountain. Yeah, or so, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, it's a hit, you know? Like, I mean, I guess I heard someone cranking Devil Came Down to Georgia out of their car the other day. And I was like, <laughs> could anyone elsewhere, like, appreciate this, like, 
hillbilly trash? No, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, maybe that's the equivalent. I don't know. <laughs> I think you could make comparisons to, like, the, the U.S. folk revival scene, you know, with, like, Kingston Trio there you and go. stuff. Yeah. And to Bob Dylan. Like, it's a similar kind of approach, which I was going to ask, like, do you guys know what was the like main audience for this stuff when it came out was this like a younger countercultural movement or was it like a, a mixed multi-generational thing I, I think it kind of was i mean as as far as i i mean they i guess they were on like a major label and so were fairport and some of the other sort of folk bands but i think they were definitely for young people i mean there, there's a pretty there's a cool concert you can find on the YouTube. And so I think it was officially released where it's like them and Matthew Southern Comfort. It's got to be around this time. And it's all hippies in the audience. If you look watching it, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, kind of like here. Oh, OK, here's the equivalent. Country Joe's like fixing to die rag, you know, where he's doing <laughs> one, two, three. And you see hippies like and they're in these videos and they're loving this, yeah. you know, and you and yeah. you hear it now and you're like, yeah, you know, a little bit sometimes. But uh, yeah, I think they just it was nostalgic for them, too. That's true. You know, there's, there's that trend of, you know, late 60s psych albums always having the ragtime sounding song. I, I call it shag time <laughs> yeah, okay because yeah. it's like da, 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 you know but I, that's paul mccartney's fault really yeah. it's not any american's fault we'll we'll blame sir paul i'm sorry <laughs> he's taking he, the fall he's, yeah. <laughs> so yeah just a little background on gaudete it's a sacred christmas carol thought to have been written in the 16th century and first published in a collection of Finnish and Swedish sacred songs in the year 1582 that was called the P.I. Cantiones. If my, so it's in Latin. The, the song is, is sang in Latin. Mm. What they're repeating throughout is rejoice, rejoice, Christ is born of the Virgin Mary, rejoice. That's what Gaudete uh, got. Hey, I'm yeah. learning here today. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I had never had any idea. Yeah, I haven't yeah. brushed up on my Latin lately. Yeah, so. yeah. It was a big hit, number 14 in the UK in 1973. <laughs> and Someone took objection to that. <laughs> guitarist Bob Johnson had heard the song when he attended a folk carol service with his father-in-law in Cambridge, and then brought the song to the attention of the rest of the band. And it's uh, the single is one of only three top 50 British hits to be sung fully in Latin. <laughs> and probably also among the only hit songs that are a cappella. <laughs> you, know, you can name them on one hand, probably. Yeah. You know? Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, my, my knowledge drops off. Oh, the longest time? True, I think that is that is all. Sorry, I just pulled that one out of my <laughs> Billy Joel butt. <laughs> well, yeah, we you know we've we've talked a little bit about uh, the history of the band because it was it was Maddie Pryor and Tim Hart who were recording together as a duo before the band formed with the Woods and Ashley Hutchings and all of them, correct? Do, uh, doing traditional songs. Yeah. 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 And I didn't realize by this album, they were broken up. They were not actually a couple. And she was actually going out with Rick Kemp by this point. Oh, wow. Oh, they're getting into some like Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. And Rick Kemp, it should be noted is on bass is a badass. He played on the best Michael Chapman records. He was like Chapman's right hand bass oh, really? player, man. Yeah. Okay. He's on, he's on all the good. If you look, He's on all the good Chapman records and stuff. So like I, I hold him in, in like a sort of especially high regard. Yeah. So, and yeah, I guess so did Maddie. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and she is the one constant member of the band throughout the the decades and decades that they, as far as I can tell, that you know the band has still in some iteration been around to this day. I saw him a couple of years ago and did a brief interview with her, and yes, it was it was definitely Maddie Pryor and some guys. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, some who've been playing with her for a while at this point, mm -hmm. but yeah, you know, and they did obviously stuff off these classic records. You yeah, know, but. Yeah, still going, still going, still going. Strong. As long as Manny Pryor is still going, Steel Ice Band is still yeah. going. Yes, basically. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy with moving right along with the selections at this point. We had discussed playing the track "Sheep Crook" and "Black Dog," which was uh, one that you had been stoked on playing. And I think, uh, how did you feel about this track, Sean? This might be my favorite track on the album, honestly. Yeah, it's one of, it's one of mine too. Yeah. Yeah. You got some fuzz, you got some cool arrangement. It's got a it's got a really good vibe. Yeah, a good mix of fuzz in there. Just uh, like this is the one I would say where the arrangement is sort of like almost like progressive rock, you know, it's sort of like things are coming in and out of the mix and it's full band too, you know. It's it's definitely not a madrigal of just voices or whatever, but uh I I think it's a it, you can't really compare it to any other music in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a slow burn. <laughs> yeah, it's their, it's their, it's this is their thing. Awesome. Let's listen to Sheep Crook and Black Dog, side A, track four. I think that's one of the best showcases for the power of Maddie Pryor's voice on this album. 
Mm-hmm. I have not seen her perform live, but I can imagine she's very captivating. <laughs> she's got a powerful voice, and then she also kind of has that, I guess I've seen it sometimes described, these sort of traditional British vocal. It's like cut glass, <laughs> you know? It's like so perfect and sort of of the past or something like that. And Judy Dibel, I think, had it too from early Fairport Convention. Yeah, the first singer before it's Sandy Denny. Th- there's something perfect about it, you know? I, I don't know how to put it, but um, yeah. And and again, just she can wail too, like at, at her thing, you know? But yeah, kind of one of my favorite, favorite, British female vocalist for sure. That was collected from a singer named Queen Caroline Hughes, who was born in 1900 in a horse-drawn caravan at Bear Regis in Dorset, England. I guess she was a prolific and impressive singer, and she'd been recorded by Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger and, and Peter Kennedy in the 1960s, and she had died in 1972, the year this album Oh wow! Came out so. I've been to Dorset too. It's nice. Oh yeah. It's very pastoral, sort of. It's it's kind of what you know. It's like Cornwall or some of these other places you hear about. You sort of you could see little elves and fairies, kind of you know, flying in the fields or something, <laughs> kind of place. You know. Yeah. Just a cool arrangement on that song. I mean, the way again, the way things sort of come in and out of the mix, and then yeah, that nice little classical guitar figure sort of comes in there. Yeah, it's turn around. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just it's just sophisticated i mean the i mean it's like her voice is sort of the constant in the song while everything sort of comes in and out and plays around it which is like just a unique way of i think of arranging you know yeah i think that song was an easier entry for me as well because it reminds me a lot of some of the prog stuff that i do listen to um thinking about bands like gentle giant that band renaissance Kind of, yeah, too. yeah. Renaissance a great example, mm-hmm. but like a lot of the bands, even Yes and stuff, would have these folk elements and interludes and stuff, True. and mix it in with a heavier song. So like that, so that made sense to me. And like hearing these songs, I was like, okay, I, I get that angle now. And you, honestly, a lot of this is just an acquired taste. You yeah. know, if you don't have any background in kind of like traditional folk styles of any place, it's going to seem really off-putting at first. And once you get past that, then the choices on the arrangements and the vocals and the instrumentation start to open up a lot more and have a lot more weight to them when you listen to this record. I think Pentangle were kind of like that for me too, who now are like one of my absolute favorites of that, but they're sort of like traditional songs and maybe a little more jazz in it, you know, mm-hmm. but I think both would have been branded progressive folk, you know, and for the time, yeah, Chrysalis, Transatlantic Records. There were a few labels that seemed to, some Harvest stuff that seemed to do like progressive folk. It was a thing, yeah. you know? It was a weird thing. Normally, at this point, we would turn to Sean and, and ask for recommended similar albums that you can usually find relatively cheap. Uh, but I did not want to do that to him, <laughs> being that this is not his bread and butter. So uh, I thought I would name a couple, and Steve, uh, if if you want to name a couple in your repertoire of this kind of music, I think we can do that at this point. I mean, and you just mentioned one that I was planning to mention, Pentangle's Basket of Light, which probably should be a $10 to $15 record, but I see it for five or less so often. For those who don't know, uh, Pentangle uh, was the band of Burt Janch, 
he was in that group at that time, as well as uh, who is the singer's name? The Jackie McShee. Yes. Who I did have the pleasure of seeing once as before. And another cut glass vocal from uh, her right there. It's like perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And who's the other one? John Renborn. John Renborn. Yeah. Danny Thompson on bass. One of the all-time great session stand-up bass players as well. Tony Cox on drums. Mm-hmm. So Pentangle, we, we made eventually uh, Taylor Rowley, frequent guest of the show, told me that she buys a copy of Basket of Light every time she sees it. And just gives it to someone. I, I have some records like that as well. I, I think uh, Buffy St. Marie's Illuminations was one of those ooh. for a long time. One dollar, give it to your buddy, you know? Yeah. Now it's like 30. I know. It's a, <laughs> I, when I was in Philadelphia with Sean uh, last week, I found a copy for 12 and he was like, buy that right yeah. now. 12 is a pretty good price for that record. Nowadays. I know. Uh, the other album that I was going to recommend is a Maddie Pryor solo album, Woman in the Wings. Mm. It's, which is she does a she does a cu- couple tracks on there where she departs into um, like jazzier stuff and she even does one that's like the Andrews sisters on there <laughs> and so you she could do it all yeah you could you it's a it's a it's cool to hear an example of what her voice can do when not in this more traditional folk vein on that record but that's one that if you find it it probably won't cost you too much so those are the couple I have. Do you have any in mind? Yeah, I was, you know, I was actually going to say she did some other records we were discussing for Silly Sisters with uh, June Tabor, who has a very similar voice. It's almost hard to tell them apart sometimes yeah. on that record. But I got that record in a dollar bin, for real. And June's records, sometimes with this guy Martin Simpson, are really good, too. And I don't think people know it. I, I feel like uh, folk rock, especially from like the late 70s and 80s, people don't know what to do with. And they don't always have very good covers. And they just sort of languish in the bin. Um, you know, maybe also I would say on the American trad end, you have like... Mimi and Richard Farina records, always a dollar, you know, Ian and Sylvia, yeah. you know, do a lot of traditional covers, always a dollar, you know. Yeah, that's one, uh, the Canadian folk. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've, t- I've been planning to do an Ian and Sylvia record for a long time and just. I like reason. all those records, you know, uh, a little different, I guess, but they all, I saw Ian Matthews from Fairport Convention do a whole show of Richard Farina songs. So uh-huh. there's cross pollination there of those as well. But I always urge people to pick those. Eric Anderson, another kind of like underrated sort of poetic folky. always tell people to buy those for a dollar too. Yeah. The stuff's out there, and, and people don't care enough yet that you can still find it pretty cheap. Check most. your folk bins. Yeah. Check your folk <laughs> bins, because there's a lot of good stuff in there, and it's still cheap and not totally pillaged yet, you know? Yeah. Well, while you're here, we thought it would also be fun, since we're focusing on the year 1972, being that it's 50 years since 1972, to just get some of your thoughts on that year in music i I don't necessarily have a good jumping off point you know at the beginning of the season we dropped a heavy list of some of the major records released that year like david bowie ziggy stardust rolling stones exile on main street you know but i I didn't even there were some that obviously there were plenty that i didn't even think when i was dropping the list to to mention i think uh, cap there were many people that put out two albums that year i think captain beefheart might have dropped both uh, clear spot and spotlight kid that year t-rex the slider there's just so many 
albums that year. But if, if you have any kind of thoughts on what music was like at that time or what, it seems like a particularly magical year in music. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all the early 70s were in a way, you know, I mean, as we were saying before, I'm like, was there a bad record made in 1972? Oh, yeah, what yeah. is? I feel like it'd be a, more of a challenge to find one because the production was all good. Ideas were fresh in all these genres you mentioned, you know, like you even had Black Sabbath and, you know, putting out, it, it was, there's so much that had just not been done yet in glam, hard rock, folk rock, psych rock, progressive rock, you know, every, every genre, jazz rock, I feel like all these were still in their sort of like cool experimentation phase where everything was still fresh, yet you still had a, you know, a 60s hangover in everything a little bit. So like, I don't think the full on 70s had come in yet, you know, as far as like, I, I, I used to be such a capper at about 75, because, you know, that's when I thought like, sort of like, prog rock and funk and a lot of things sort of like took a disco we started to take more of a slicker turn now i've amended that a little bit because everything sounds so inorganic i'm like ooh, a record from 1978 this sounds great you know <laughs> this sounds like it was recorded on a four tray it sounds so organic compared to what is done today so i i've amended it a little bit but yeah i just think everything was just so fresh you know and i think the underground and the overground if you will, of music was still a little blurred, you know, because you you had like labels like Harvest and Island and stuff that were pretty much simultaneously putting out bands of both, you know, and yeah. it was like a band like Free, a uh, 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 mainstream band or an underground band? I, I don't even know, or mm -hmm. Hawkwind or something, you know, it's like I, they were having a hit i think silver machine hit in 72 or right around there so it's like i think an underground band could have a hit in 1972 is another thing you know well yeah like marketing choices weren't ruled by the algorithms at that exactly. point so a lot of times it was just people being like well maybe the kids are into weird shit these days like let's which see is like this one hits, i think you know? carried over from the 60s when they just started you know when you had cap records signing like the silver apples you know who'd <laughs> if they went from like jack jones to silver apples they were like oh this is just some weird stuff the kids like you know and then that grew into like its whole thing you know like labels that specifically did that and were funded by major labels yeah, even yeah, the early seventies. There's some weird stuff that entered the top forty. I think it was 1970, but you have Blood Rock scoring a top forty hit with DOA, <laughs> the, which is just not something you know. Or even just a little earlier than that, Arthur Brown getting a hit with Fire in the late '68. You know, there's just a time where very weird stuff could sit right beside you know stuff that would be in your average and American. it would fuel more weird stuff because they'd be like this weird thing's a hit let's you know the fire was even a hit on am fm and black radio yeah basically at the time because they didn't know if it was a white guy and he'd show up at gigs and people would be like whoa yeah you know like they didn't know you know because <laughs> it was more a little more mysterious in those days cool well we could chat with you all day about this stuff steve but thank you so much for for joining us to to talk the year My 1972 pleasure. and steel eye span and, and for backing me up with 
Ren Fair music. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, I have never been to a Ren Fair. Yeah. I've never gone. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't really want to dress up in the period stuff and yeah. no. eat a meat thing on a big meat thing. And N- not my bag at all. But based on this album cover, the fact that I you like... would think I would enjoy the hell out of yeah, it, you they, know, they, but they, I've never gone there. Yeah. We, we haven't discussed that yet, but the, the album cover. You, there's no doubt that you're going to hear exactly what you hear when you put this record on. When I was letting the guys know what the selection was going to be, I sent that and Jeremy was like, why do I suddenly feel betrayed? How how <laughs> red and fair is that album? <laughs> I mean, the font alone is red and fair, but then, yes, they're all at like having a feast in like hoods and you know monk-like robes period garb (laughs) period garb so they're going for it but then actually if you look at them they all look a little wasted on the cover a little (laughs) bit so that's you know that's a factor you know before we get out of here we should mention the album cover a little bit to my knowledge it's the band on the front and the back Mm -hmm. yes even on the like on the in the inner gatefold it has a little like legend uh, identifying each member who they are on, on the, the back, back cover on the back yep. yeah yeah i thought that was cool right and the period gear is in ho- they're more like peasants on the front and kind of like royalty on the back yeah yeah and then you can see like on the back they have like the really nice spread of food and then on the front they're eating the table scraps that are literally being thrown to them that they're catching which goes with the title of the album below the salt which we kind of alluded to but we didn't actually drop the definition the idea being that salt was a rare and expensive commodity at that point so only the upper class would be able to use salt in their food so if you were below the salt you were part of the lower class that was only eating the table scraps and not actually able to even season the food that you're eating yeah it's heavy i had never thought about it till i read about i gotta admit i did not either oh yeah Yeah, i truly did not yeah I uh, one more detail that I wanted to mention uh, on this record is it was produced and engineered by the band along with a guy named Jerry Boys. And at first I, I was confused. I thought it was that multiple people, Jerry Boys. He produced a he's produced a ton of stuff or engineered on tons of stuff, uh, including Vashti Bunyan, just another diamond day. Oh. And he did some rem records level 42 wow yeah and he did the fathering gay record as well uh, sandy mm. denny's other band uh aside from fairport all Convention. good stuff you won't find in the dollar bin <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's funny because fairport convention like the the cat's out of the bag on that yeah sandy denny fairport convention you're gonna richard thompson you're gonna throw down money for that stuff yeah these um, days Vashti Bunyan, you're going to show down hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Did you interview Vashti Bunyan? I did. I did, actually. Amazing. She was everything you would hope her to be. I'll just I'll just say that. Yeah. I, basically, my massive crush on her continued after the it, it was continued after the interview. That, that's, that's good. You wouldn't want it to go the other no, way. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well... Thank you so much, Steve. Plastic Crime Wave Krakow. Do you have anything uh, that you'd like to plug? I, I have. Uh, I, I know that you you told me uh, the other day when we were setting things up that uh, you're working on the next issue of the Galactic Zoo dossier. Slowly but surely, yes. Which is a, a zine that you've been illustrating and compiling interviews with uh, a lot of psych folk related musicians for. 
Uh, what what issue is the next one going to be? You've been doing it for what twenty five plus. I know, years? and I'm only on number eleven. So that that <laughs> goes to show you how often these things come out. But yes, yes, I, there is a Maddie Pryor interview. Uh, Martin Carthy, who was in the band, not at this point, but mm-hmm. other points. It'll happen. It'll happen yeah. one of these days. I'll just throw out plastercrimewave.com. There's usually what I have going on. There it there. is. There it is. <laughs> Excellent. So are we going to close on the uh, John the Barleycorn? John Barleycorn is what we're going to It's just a folk tune I've always loved, and tons of people have covered this one. Traffic does a great version. Mm-hmm. Speaking of another band that was killing it in 72. And kind of going trad folk, kind of going progressive, kind of is just a thing. Uh, yeah, just a great mournful folk tune and this is the only piece that really prominently features the voice of tim hart that we're going to play today so you will not be hearing uh, i mean uh, you know he was probably in gaudete but that was a choir (laughs) right 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 yeah you can hear him uh, in in songs for sure yeah 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 yep so tim hart will be the voice you hear on this final selection john barleycorn and with that i think we are ready to wrap up another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you so much for listening. And my name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Plastic Crime Wave. There were three men came from the West, their fortunes for the tell, and the life of John Barleycorn as well. They have laid him in three furrows deep, laid clods upon his head. Then these three men made a solemn avow, John Barleycorn was dead, John Barleycorn was dead. They let him alive for a very long time, till the rain from heaven did fall. Johnny sprang up his head and he did amaze them all. He did amaze them all. And they let him stand till the midsummer day, till he looked both pale and wan. Then little Sir John.